0: On the show today, Karsten Stendevad, the CEO, CIO for Sustainability at Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in the world. And with us is also my co-host, Rainier Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. So today we'll talk about the power of directing capital. But first, a warm welcome to you, Karsten, to this show. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. So Kirsten, six years ago, you decided to join Bridgewater and move to the US. And before that, you were the CEO of ATP, Denmark's National Pension Plan, where you chaired the investment committee overseeing the $130 billion portfolio. So I'm curious to know, how did you two find each other and what convinced you actually to move?
1: Well, I had been at ATP for a number of years and had a wonderful time there. And then really for family reasons, I had to move back to the United States. And one day I got a call from uh, Ray Dalio, uh, the founder of Bridgewater, who I knew Ray and Bridgewater from my past and had always been an admirer of their investment process and their research. And he said, come talk to us. And then it really started like a pretty long series of conversations around the firm, the research, the future. And in the end, I thought this just sounds too exciting uh, for me not to do. And uh, I've been
0: there now for six years. Wonderful. Also curious to know, in in the world of finance, do you see more and more people that put uh, being part of the solution first? Yeah, I think, you know,
1: broadly speaking, while I think it's fair to say that in the financial community and in the private sector in general, financial returns is the main objective. I think it's fair to say that increasingly we see economic players, whether it's private companies or it's investment institutions think about the question of how do you align your activities broadly with the direction which society is seeking to go, like be, uh, I think in your words, be aligned with the solution. And I think it's true for for many institutions, certainly in, uh, you mentioned ATP, of course, my experience there being in a the CEO of a national pension plan in, in a country like Denmark that has, of course, sustainability is a key consideration. I think it was a very natural place there to really grapple with how do you do that effectively. Of course, the objective has to be creating great returns. Pensioners rely on the returns. And so that has to be the primary objectives. But is there a way of doing it in a manner that is also consistent with where we want society to go? And I think more broadly, we see it around the world that more and more institutions, financial institutions are asking themselves that question. With the whole net zero movement, probably being the prime example of institutions saying, well, in addition to financial goals, can we also align our activities with net zero? So that's, I think, is an increasing trend as we will talk about, it has lots of complexities, lots of difficulties, but I do think it's an increasing trend.
2: It would be great if you could uh, just elaborate a little bit on how you moved into the CIO of sustainability role in, in Bridgeport. Was that something that was there when you joined or did you create it or how did that come about? It happened
1: very organically and it happened really as a function of two things as a function of our research initiatives, and really as a function of our dialogue with our clients, our large institutional investing clients. And it started very much with a puzzle, with a key question, which is more and more institutions are saying that they have sustainability objectives or net zero objectives that they want to implement in their investment portfolios. I think it's fair to say also that most institutions say, we know that at the aspiration level, but how do you actually do it at scale in liquid markets So not a little demonstration portfolio, but really how would you do it if you had to do it across a big institutional sized investment portfolio? And so that started as the question. So we spent a lot of time thinking through that and trying to build out almost from a blank sheet of paper to say, well, if that's the challenge, starting with the goal, you want to have great risk adjusted returns. And now you have this additional objective of also wanting to align your capital with sustainable outcomes. Well, then I think we really have to rethink A lot of things in our investment process from the portfolio construction, from the uh, security selection, really throughout the the whole portfolio construction approach. So it started with a research question saying, could you do that? And could you actually then develop a portfolio that had very, very similar returns, but still being more sustainable? And the more we looked at it and the more we thought about it, the more we thought, hey, this really is something that uh, we think is an important contribution we feel to the field. We feel we can help our clients in this manner. It can improve us as investors. And so one day we said, actually, let's really formalize it. And so now we have a significant team, senior investors, kind of the full power of Bridgewater's analytical platform deployed towards the, the challenge. And so it, I would say it happened very organically as a process of research and our client dialogues.
2: Interesting. So you both talk about the risk return and then adding this third dimension of impact. But if we keep to the first, just sort of the risk-reward part of it, and we have worked a lot with George Sarafim at Harvard Business School, and he's been on the show as well. And some of his research historically has shown that a lot of the ESG metrics are not that material. It doesn't actually affect the risk nor the return. And he and Michael Porter wrote an article in Institutional Investor about where ESG fails. And was sort of describing that a lot of the ESG measures didn't really have an impact. So uh, Bridgewater, you've been sort of the leading in in algorithms and figuring out what metrics to follow and what is material. So it would be fantastic to hear a little bit about how you cracked this nut of actually making ESG have a a real risk reduction uh, effect and affect the risk reward balance.
1: Yeah, great. Let me introduce you into how we invest in general, and then where sustainability fits in. And uh, I can go straight to the punchline and say that I actually agree with Professor Serafim that there are a number of sustainability considerations that are very important for the world, but actually don't really matter that much for the portfolio. And there are some that I've matter a lot. So, But starting with who we are uh, as investor. So Bridgewater is a macro investor. What that means is we really have multi-asset portfolios, where we try to express views uh, driven by our understanding of how the world economy works. Again, we try to think about the global economy almost like a machine. We systematize that uh, understanding into uh, our systems, and then we create very diversified portfolios based on it. And we try to do that in a manner that is both kind of macro down, like you start with the top of the world or the macro economy, go through policy, and you kind of drill down to individual securities. And we also try to do it bottoms up, meaning you start with individual companies or entities, and you build up to a macro understanding. So the first question we asked ourselves was, how does sustainability interact with our systems? Are there areas where there's things that we have missed or things that are important for us to flesh out so that our macro understanding becomes better? And there were, are indeed a number of areas of it. I'll mention a couple of examples. So there's so much talk about net zero alignment. The question we asked ourselves is, well... If the world is transitioning towards net zero, let's look at how that would impact our understanding of the world. Question one would be, well, how would it actually transition? It's not going to happen miraculously. It's going to happen as a function of actions, policy actions. So we might look at various types of climate-related policies and see which ones are they? How would that impact growth or inflation or other things in the economy? For example, in the case of net zero, uh, we might look at, well, if all these institutions financial institutions, corporates, commodity producers, if they all really do what they're saying they're going to do, how does it add up for demand supply dynamics? How does the outlook for transition, how does that impact oil demand supply? How does that impact, for example, coal demand supply? How does that impact metal supply? Metals actually is is one of my favorite examples because how can you think about copper? How can you think about trading copper if you don't understand the carbon transition? If you don't understand The policies that will drive electrical vehicle adoption, which are one of the key drivers of demand for copper. So, that for us is a great example of we don't even call that sustainability, we just call that research. It's research that we need to do because you cannot understand a particular security without understanding this aspect of net zero.
2: But when did Bridgewater start looking at this?
1: When I started this work, I kind of went back and I looked at our research for the last number of years and I said, What is actually type of research that we actually have been doing that we never called sustainability? For example, all of our tracking of demand supply dynamics, we've always had this approach of trying to map individual players and their, you know, a reaction function. Like, why are they acting the way they are? And so, like, I think in the case of commodities is one that we've done for for several years. There are other examples where it's more of a recent thing. We do it the second we think it is of relevance to either the way the economy works, or the way individual financial actors will act. So, uh, so it, I would say really in the last five years that we've intensified that work. So once we do all that work, it's a very analytically orientated attempt to take sustainability issues and see how they interact with our macro systems. Then you have to ask the next question, which is, okay, well, so now we have this understanding but what does it mean in terms of how you would trade? And of course, there the big question is what's priced in the markets. So, for example, you may have situations where you have certain underlying assumptions, let's say in copper, that assumes a certain amount of decarbonization path or like a basically a, a transition to electrical vehicles and others. And you look at is that realistic? Is that what's priced in? And then you can take your views. So you start with the understanding, understand what's really priced in, and then you say, well, what does it mean then for our individual either alpha views or risk controls. There might be situations where you say, look, we think there is a particular risk here. We have to manage that. All this that I've said so far, some people might call that ESG integration. We don't even call it that. We just call it investing because we do it with the sole purpose of improving the financial performance of our portfolio. Then a couple of years ago, we started doing something in addition to that. Because just because you understand something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it may or may not impact your positions. It may not be relevant. There's a different question that then goes, well, what if you, you don't just want to f- optimize for your returns? You now actually want to make sure that your portfolio is aligned with sustainable outcomes. You actually want to be, in your words, a kind of part of the solution. So that's we've built new portfolios where we take this understanding that I've just described and we combine it with this new analytics where we ask an additional question, which is this particular security. It's like a double materiality question. Like, how does this individual company, how does that impact sustainability? It's not like saying, how does sustainability impact their performance? It's kind of the reverse question. And that for us, we build out a whole analytical system. We can get into the details of that, which now enables us to do both, both understand the financial implications and the sustainability implications. And now I'm back to your first question, which is, well, does it matter for financial performance? And what we would say is, Well, in certain individual areas for certain particular assets, you have to incorporate this to have understand the asset. But there are lots of issues. So for example, let's take the case of copper. I just told you about electrical vehicles. Okay, that's helpful to understand that. But what happens with Chinese growth is even more important to understand copper. And of course, there are some interlinkages there. But it's not as if it's the single most important thing. It's just one of several things that we have to look at. And therefore, the question about how then this security impacts the world, which we call that like the third dimension, the impact dimension, there are many situations where you have a company that actually is faring fine, even though it's unsustainable. This financial performance actually will be fine. Like oil companies over the past year, they haven't really had problems with profitability. They've done just fine. But this third dimension where you ask, well, what's the implication of fossil fuel in the world? It's a third dimension. Now, in a way, in an ideal world, You would be able to internalize, put a price on that and put it into your systems. And that's that's some of the work that Serafim and others are are working on. But I think as a first order approximation, I think it's very helpful just even to ask the question of yes or no, do we think this is a a sustainable activity? Yes or no. And then if you have a portfolio where you only want to invest in sustainable entities, you make sure that you have as little exposure to that as possible. And you have as much exposure to securities or things that actually will accelerate the transition. So that's how we think about it.
2: When you add that third dimension of impact and compare it to the portfolio which only have the two dimensions of a risk-reward with an ESG filter on it, what would the returns be on those two portfolios? So
1: the very short answer is we think we can create very similar returns, but typically the sustainable portfolios would be slightly less diversified, slightly less diversified. And what that means by that is we think if you really say like, we, I really want to only invest in sustainable securities. First of all, you have to figure out how do you actually know what's sustainable? But well, let's assume you knew that. Then in a way, the whole world is not sustainable. Many companies, many places are not sustainable. So it is a smaller universe to invest in. But in a way, this is part of the puzzle is to say, can you, if you have a clear understanding and ability to assess what is sustainable or not, and of course, it's not a yes, no thing, it's a range thing. Can you now then through portfolio engineering Construct portfolios that still are, in a way, deliver as strong risk adjusted returns as possible? Can you create diversified portfolios? Can you make sure you don't have like, unwanted biases? And in the portfolios that we run, the short answer is we think it's very, very similar returns for a slightly less diversification, slightly higher risk. So you might say it's a slightly less efficient portfolio, but it's very, very similar. Now, some people say, well, how is that possible? Shouldn't it be a better portfolio? Because you know, some people might argue there's like an ESG premium and these companies would do better. My response back to that is in a way several fold. The first one is if it was so great, we would do it in all of our portfolios. The second one is there are things in the world that are not sustainable and that are financially attractive. So there is a a conceptual restriction of the universe if you say you really only want to invest in that. Is that a big deal or a small deal? I think this goes to a very fundamental question for many of us, which has to do with our almost being prisoners of our mental uh, models. Most of us, you know, First year in finance or in math, we took the lesson on that showed unconstrained optimization versus constrained optimizations. And we all learned that there is an efficiency loss. And necessarily when you have two objectives or a slightly smaller smaller universe, it must be less efficient. And that is true conceptually. In practice, when you build a portfolio, first of all, there are very few investors who are exactly at that perfect efficient frontier. Most investors have all kinds of constraints they put on their portfolios that have even nothing to do with sustainability. They may not want to use leverage. They may may not want to be able to invest in certain things. So most investors in in the world are operating in the world of, there are certain constraints of things we can and cannot do. And so for me, the real question is, practically speaking, with the practical constraints that most people have, can you still deliver by and large the same financial results? And our, our answer is yes, very, very similar.
2: I would almost have expected it to outperform a traditional portfolio. I see the companies that we are looking at, I will deem them more future-proof. So at least if you have the longer lens, they should have more tailwind and they are less, uh, you know, if the regulatory changes are companies which are delivering positive impact, those regulatory changes will be positive for the companies in every instance. For other companies, it could be a risk. And I don't know how easy it's to measure, but I would just think that over time, Companies that have the same starting points, same EV, Beta, or PE, same growth, same margins, the ones that actually have a positive solution are more better performing over time. So I think you're absolutely right that there
1: are individual securities
2: of where, in a
1: way, the sustainability profile is a core part of the, the value creation and it may be the thing that makes them winners. But the thing that I'm trying to say is that. If you ask about in a large diversified portfolio, I would say, I don't think one can make a blanket statement that the ones that are sustainable will necessarily win. Let me give you some examples. Let's say the the performers of auto companies. So they're all trying to now transition to become electrical vehicle manufacturers. There's going to be winners and losers. Even if they all transition, there will be some losers. And so even though they are trying to do something that's sustainable, they're putting all their green capex towards the transition. Some will do well, some will not do well. That's point number one. So it means even in that universe of sustainable companies, or like on the path to becoming sustainable, they will be winners and losers. The second thing is, let's say they all maintain their current market share. So in a way, they were all like more or less where they were today. There are other drivers of of the performance of their valuation and and whether or not it's a good investment, like the, the overall economic environment. There could be all kinds of taxation. There could be all kinds of things that would impact their performance that is not strictly driven by sustainability. So in a way, the only point that I'm making is that I don't think... One can say that automatically, because you're sustainable, that you will outperform. I think what you're saying, I agree with, it, which is that there are pockets of companies where the fact that they're sustainable is going to be a key driver of them outperforming. I think that's also true. In a way, both things are true. Sustainability is not always going to lead to outperformance, and sustainability sometimes can lead to outperformance. So I usually say that sustainability, it's just not a it's not like an ESG factor that you can apply to every company that has sustainable outcomes. I will remind you and i know this of course being in scandinavia we have a painful history of this that a lot of investors lost a lot of money on renewable energy over the past 20 years some of the biggest losses that i experienced in my time at atp some of them were actually on very renewable things not because it was renewable but just kind of there was expropriation operational there were other risks that occurred so i just put that out there only to say that i never assume a causality i think it's like an additional very important
2: component that we have to analyze but i would never say that just because we're sustainable we would we would outperform i completely agree with that and i've also been i mean we invest in private companies so i'm just an observer of what's happening in the public markets and we do need to invest in this new and scale up on the renewable sides and new technologies but i've been amazed uh, when sort of esgs suddenly become trendy how all the money was going towards even pre-revenue companies at uh, very very high valuations where we see a lot of opportunities is back to what you talked a little bit about is, You know, maybe 10% of in the world is green or sort of semi-green. And 10% is maybe black or even more, uh, or just, you know, you shouldn't be there. It's not future-proof at all. But 80% is transition. So if you look at waste and recycling, for example, it's an area that we need to transition. And we've done a piece that we will published uh, also now on, on how much needs to be invested in CapEx in Europe in order to make a circular economy, what's the revenue potential of that, and what's the value creation potential of that. It's huge. And these waste and recycling companies, you can get for low multiples compared to some of these pre-revenue green companies. So I do think there's quite large pockets, which investors haven't been really focused on, which I think is a huge investment opportunity and where, where you will have tailwind growth creation potential going forward.
1: Absolutely. And I think it goes to a very important point that for those investors who's, for example, have taken the net zero commitment or who just wishes to have this kind of alignment with the sustainable outcomes, I think a very important point to them is to say, there's a difference between having good short-term metrics in your portfolio that kind of make you look good versus are you actually aligning your capital with what is going to make this world go in the direction that you, you wish to go to, which goes to the issue of transitioning assets. And like if you care, for example, about decarbonization, there's of course one element of focusing on climate solutions like green tech, et cetera, but you can't be in a pension plan and put all your money in that, of course. That will be like a small thing. The bigger deal thing, both in your portfolio and for the world, is where the carbon is today. And so I think it's very important to be able to run towards the problem, not away from the problem, but in a thoughtful way. In a thoughtful way where you're able to say, I'm in a way willing to finance as an entity that is not sustainable today. But that is on a clear and proven track record to transitioning, and that doesn't mean putting a LinkedIn update on your net zero commitment. But it's like, no, no. If we can go in, and this is what we try to do in our systematic approach, and systematically assess a company or an industry, and say, let's look at this transition plan. And is it credible? We might look at is it technically feasible? Is it economically viable? Like, what is the greenium? Is the company actually committed to it? Not just in terms of the specificity of the targets, but Are we also starting to see it being a core part of their corporate strategy? Can you see it reflected in like incentive plans? Are we starting to see like green CapEx or like, are we actually starting to see the company moving towards it? And I think if you have a situation of a company, you mentioned one, but there are many industries. Actually, autos is a great example of, if you look at auto companies today, they're not sustainable, right? They're not. But let's go through this logic. Is it technically feasible to create a much less carbon intensive vehicle? Yes. Is it financially possible? Like, Is the difference between EVs and normal cars, is it coming into a level where you can really scale it up? Yes. Is it technically feasible to really scale it up? Of course it's not. You know, There's all kinds of supply chain and raw material challenges, but by and large, it's now starting to be like, oh, you think it's feasible to ramp it up? Are the companies actually spending on it? Yes. Are they committing to particular goals? Like, You go through the whole list, you're like, yeah, that is not an unsustainable company. It seems to be a credible on a transition path. By the way, then of course you have to do the analysis of saying, okay, that's good on this transition part. Is it financially attractive? You still have to do that analysis. They may do all that stuff and it may not be financially attractive, but you put that package together. And I think that's a great example of a type of company that in my book certainly would belong in a sustainable portfolio. I would say there are lots of examples of heavy industry companies that we really need to transition. And if they're committed to it and it's credible and we think it's aligned with a a sensible financial story, then they deserve a
2: space in any sustainable portfolio. You shared some of your secret sauce on how you are putting into your macro picture the net zero targets and how that will affect different uh, industries and different companies. What more of your secret sauce can you share? So, w- how has Bridgewater chosen the key ESG metrics and what are the important ones? It's really trying to deploy
1: the way that Bridgewater has invested for 40 years, like in macro markets, take all the insights and the techniques of that and now apply it to sustainability. So, if I now specifically speak about 3D portfolios, In other words, portfolios where we specifically have an impact angle. What we try to do is we always try to say we have to have a very clearly defined objective. If you have fuzzy objectives for portfolios, it's very difficult to build good ones. So we have clearly defined financial objectives, which is we want to have great risk-adjusted returns. We want to have it be very well diversified, be able to perform in different economic environments. And then we needed a concept of sustainability that is clear, well-defined, and that we can build out all of our systems around. So we chose the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And there are a number of reasons why we did that. First of all, there is global consensus around uh, them as important. They are broad in their scope, which we actually think is very helpful both for the world, but also as an investor, because it means it represents a lot of different economic activities. And there's a growing, I think, data ecosystem that would enable us to start to build it out. So you start with that concept. And we say, we want everything in these portfolios to be aligned with that. Then you got to go to the next question, which says, okay, well, how would you know? And so asset class by asset class, what we always try to do in our research process is to try to distill the question into something very simple. So for example, for companies, we will ask the simple question of, let's look at what the company does and how they do it. It's a very simple question. So what they do is we look at products and services and how they do it are all the business operations. And then what we do is what we do in all of our other systems, which is we say, now now that we have that data concept, those clear questions. Let's now go out in the world and find the type of data or information that we would need to answer those questions. That data may not exist in a format that answers those questions. So what that means is we have done a ton of work to go out and do diligence all types of sustainable data, whether it's from, of course, commercial data providers, academic data providers, like experimental data. Then we take this data, ingest it, and then we have to decompose it and rebuild our own in a way, it's our investment logic. It's really our sustainability indicators for these two questions. And then we do that as systematically as we can, which includes dealing with the inevitable data challenges that exist, which, by the way, exist in a lot of other areas at sustainability. But we have an accumulated understanding of how to do that, not to rely too much on any one indicator, have triangulation and diversification even within our investment logic, uh, make sure that the, in a way the systems are stable um, so that you know one little change doesn't change the whole system. And then ultimately, what we try to do is to come up with what is a, like our logic is completely systematized, and it should reflect the way we think, like the way if we had a piece of paper, we would actually answer these two questions. And then once we do that, we do that at scale, automate it as much as possible. And we like to systemization because it enables us, A, to do things fast and at scale, but it mostly, it forces us to be very precise about our logic which sometimes is difficult here. Right? There's lots of, lots of choices you have to make about, well, how would you think about whether this is sustainable or not? And sometimes you have to make like good first order approximations that may or may not be very good, but you force yourself to be write it down, be explicit. And once it's written down, you can then spend all your time trying to perfect it, right? So if you ask our system, it's very well built out. We have a clear understanding both of where we think it's strong, where we think it needs development. And all of our research time can be spent directly focused on the areas where we know that first order approximation answer was still not good enough. We need to go find better data. We need to improve our logic. And then ultimately, that's in a way the, the, the system to identify where it's sustainable. Then there's the next question, which is, okay, so now you have to incl- incorporate it into your portfolio construction. And there, in a way, it's completely built in. So that means that we want to have portfolios now where we, you know, we can, in a way, put in our alpha views. We can put in all of our risk controls and our like, views on diversification and liquidity management alongside these sustainability objectives. And then we build the portfolios. So I know that's a very long answer and maybe it's a very boring answer because mostly what we've done is we've just taken our systematic approach, our fundamental systematic approach, and we applied it here.
2: I think it was a thrilling answer and I'm really excited about it, Carson. So what you're describing is actually what Summa has been doing in our portfolio, but we only have a few companies and we only look at that company and can analyze it to death, right? So we have done, but you have been able to do that on large data sets for a large universe of public companies. And I think that's fantastic. If I go back to your very first
1: question, which was around, well, what's the trade-off? And anytime you engineer portfolios, you realize that, you know, you can, of course, you can turn these different dials in different ways. For example, do you want to build like a half a billion dollar, highly aligned portfolio that's not very liquid? Okay, then you can turn the dials of kind of alpha and sustainability and risk, you can turn it in a certain way, you can get a certain portfolio. If you're now asking the question, no, 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 actually I need to build a hundred billion dollar portfolio. Okay, well, that's a different story because it's, and you need like a lot of liquidity, little liquidity. You can effectively now start to think through your portfolio objectives. And now, now as almost as engineers, you can say, well, look, the asset owner determines the objectives. And now we try to turn these dials in a manner that uh, deliver the best possible portfolio.
2: I wonder if Norwegian oil fund, and Nikolaj Tangen, if he used your algorithms on their portfolio, how that will will turn out. That would have been a quite interesting exercise to see. (laughs) You know, I think a philosophical point is like every investor has a different way of investing, right? You've just described
1: how you invest and we have our way of investing. What I think is to be celebrated for the industry is like if every investor stepped back and said, what is an authentic way that I can lean into this question? That is authentic for the way I invest. That is deeply integrated, where I focus on the things that are material to me. And the answer to these these questions will be very different. I mean, the way you invest is very different from the way we invest, which is very different from the way, let's say, a a concentrated, high conviction, uh, long only equity manager might invest. And the portfolios, as a result, will also look different. I think that's to be celebrated. That's, by the way, what creates a market. But I think it's it's a very good thing. Like, if everyone did it the exact same way, that wouldn't. I don't think that would be necessarily good. And the truth is also, you know, there's a lot of debate around, well, the data is bad, and what does it even mean to be sustainable? And no one seems to agree, and so therefore it must be bad. It's so odd, because in the rest of the financial markets, you know, actors don't agree on anything, right? So there's like all kinds of, that what's, is what is creating a market. And buyer and seller have different views on the future. They have different ways of approaching it, different views on valuation. And I think that's a little bit of the same thing on, on, on sustainability that there's no perfect answer. But I do think there are dimensions by which you can uh, analyze the problem. And then different investors will wish to be on a different part of that so-called impact curve. Some people will want to be really, really leaning into it. Other people may think, no, this is not for me. For me, that's no problem. I'm just celebrating the
0: fact that if every investor was trying to lean into it, I think it would make a difference. Kirsten, to just go away a little bit from this, let's say, engineering discussion and talk about the sustainable future how would that look like in 2030 do you think and i'm also eager to understand really what the transition looks like in terms of also challenges uh, what policies are around the corner and maybe also what likely steps do you think we will see what i hope the
1: sustainable future looks like is really what's laid out in the sustainable development goals the sustainable development goals they really are the most holistic picture of what it means for the world to be sustainable across environmental and social areas and by the way is a vision that there's really almost a global consensus around right so this is not like one little country or one company or one political party that came up with that this really is most countries signed up for that so i think that is the best i think vision of what a sustainable future looks like i know that's very very high level but i think one of the key components of the sustainable development goals that i think is important is this notion of not overly focusing on one dimension and also embracing the inner contradictions so for example we know that in the SDGs there is an inherent contradiction between poverty alleviation, sometimes energy transition, and sometimes health. There are certain things that it will be good for one, it would be bad for the other, and that's just reality. We, those are some of the nubby issues that we have to be able to deal with, including in our analytical systems. But that's why I like that as a vision. If we don't, if we talk about net zero transition, like even if you look at electrical vehicles, okay, electrical vehicles has uh, you know is not the perfect thing, but it has. It would be great if that happened. But, you know, it has significant implications for, of course, in, in the supply chain, for the, how we mine things, but also for jobs. Think about all those jobs in the global auto sector that really was dependent on the old type of cars that will be gone in the new types of cars. So I like this idea of saying, which is what the Sustainable Development Goals does, is to try to have a more comprehensive view of it. So that will be my view of that. And then in terms of how we make the transition, that's also a huge question. I think one of the key points that we like to make is that let's just focus on decarbonization. That's big enough of a challenge. And of course, a core part of the the sustainable development goals. The decarbonization is not just gonna happen by itself. It will happen as a function of policies that will drive individual actors' decisions. And so therefore, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is really to understand, well, what are those policy levers? What are the different types of levers that can be pulled, each of which have their own cause effect linkages? Let me let me give you a couple of examples. If you look in the US, Europe, and China, for example. So they're each pursuing decarbonization in a different manner. And kind of broadly speaking, you can think about demand supply for the stuff we don't want, fossil fuel, demand supply for the things we do want, let's say any type of renewable thing. And you can kind of affect all four. If you looked in Europe, uh, I think probably historically, at least they've been uh, leading in terms of really focusing on making, on the things they don't want, right? for example the emissions trading system is a way of affecting the price of the thing that we don't want driving up the price of fossil fuels and lowering demand if you think about the uh, requirements around electrical vehicles of banning them by 2035 it's in a way not focusing on price but focusing on the volume of the thing that we don't want right that's going to lead to a certain type of transition if you look in the united states especially with the inflation reduction act it's actually focusing not so much on the thing you don't want it's focusing on the thing that you do want and very much also trying to impact it via price and and quantity via price in a way the whole core of the Inflation Reduction Act is effectively various types of subsidies that effectively will, will make the price come down. But even kind of the focus on actually making certain things easier to do is very much focused on the quantity, like making the quantity of the new things easier. So it's just two different ways. And then you look in China, they've chosen kind of a third way, which is of course a massive public green spending in certain areas on renewables and others, at the same time of a massive expansion of coal. So to make sure that in a anyway, that's, it's basically expanding the quantity on both sides, of course, given their circumstances. Now there's pros and cons from sustainability of both. But in terms of thinking about the transition, each of these policy choices is going to flow through the economy in a very different manner. And so we spend a ton of time thinking about how those policies will flow through the, not just
2: the economy, but down to individual actors. So that is mostly how we think about the transition. I read a lot of what Ray Dalio is, is writing, and he's writing about you know potential crisis and cycles and everything. And I think what we are facing here is, uh, you know in economics, we talk about trilemmas, but we really have four ongoing dilemmas, because we have a climate crisis, so we need to fund the transition to, to a new economy. We have a social inequality rising, so we have to finance or find a way to to bring down that inequality. We have uh, had the financial crisis and since the financial crisis, we have added more debt and Ray Dalio has written a lot about this as well. So we have extended our balance sheets and increased uh, the debt levels globally as well. And the fourth crisis is that we have had a polarized political system. So democracy has been under, under pressure as well. The question is, how do we solve for uh, all of this? So it's Bridgewater and, and, and Ray Dalio. Also, are, are you optimistic that you're able to solve all of these four challenges? Because you know, if we had a healthy balance sheet and only had inequality problem, we could deal with that. Or only an energy transition problem and needed to finance our way out of climate change. You know, we could do that. But we also have a political system where this is an issue as well, both in Europe and in U.S. and, uh, and globally. So. You know, looking at all of these four crises or problems, are you optimistic that we will transition our way out of this?
1: You know, that, th- this is exactly the precarious situation that we find ourselves in. And I would add a fifth one, which is the risk of deglobalization or escalating geopolitical tension. And the reason why I bring that one up is because if you look across all the things that you talked about, certainly the energy transition and, and also, let's say, the deglobalization, we just start with those two, they are examples of very, very complex political challenges. But specifically for economic actors, they are actually inflationary in nature because what they're requiring us to do is to really spend money on things that we know is important for the world. Let's say for decarbonization, you have to spend money on things because it's important for the world. And maybe you think there's a business case, but ultimately you're adding costs. Same thing if you're kind of reshoring and creating more resilient supply chains, of course, it's very important to do, but there is an inherent inflationary uh, dynamic to it. And so if you have that in the current environment In addition to kind of the political challenges of it, it's also economically challenging. And then as you point out, it comes in a situation where there is general debt challenge of the world. You add all those things up and in our mind, it just makes the next 10 years certain for investing is we think gonna be very different from the last 10 years, kind of the the era of the the easy money and in a way easy investing is over. And mostly this is why we think as investors, like one of the reasons why we like it to have these very diversified multi-asset portfolios is because we think it's very, very difficult to predict the one path that's going to transpire. And even if you have high convictions on something, you're you're very likely to be wrong. And so I think the implications for certainly for investors is to try as hard as you can to understand these dynamics and how it impacts your views, but then have a lot of humility in terms of saying even if you think you're so good, you most likely are getting it wrong. And so build your portfolios accordingly. So that was a very narrow like investor answer. And then just of course I have to end on a more positive element of saying, you know, if you ask me if I'm positive, everything I just said holds true. I certainly am on the sustainability side. I am positive, um, meaning I do think that there has been a fundamental shift in the awareness around these issues. And certainly when I look at most of the actors in the global financial economic system that I speak to, I think at a very personal level, they understand this is really an important agenda for us to pursue now. Well, they always do the right things. And I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of choices that will not be right. But at least I feel the last couple of years, there's been a sea change in, enough, in a critical mass of decision makers that uh, it makes me optimistic that at least we will move in the right direction.
0: Kirsten, to end on a helicopter perspective, what do you think the world needs most right now? You know, I think at a very personal
1: level, I think the relevant question for all of us to ask is given my skill set, given my position in life, given the, you know, the seat that I have been given in the economic system, what are the things that I can do to kind of lean in towards solving this uh, these sustainability challenges? Of course, doing it in a manner that still enables you to fulfill your day job of, in the case of investor, delivering returns. But I think ultimately just asking that very fundamental question, like really not at the margin, but fundamentally, can I use the seat that I've been given uh, on this earth to actually make a positive difference. And if so, go for it.
0: And what would be your advice to young people who are making choices now to design their life work? You know, I think it's a combination of uh, a couple of things. I think
1: one, early in a career to actually acquire certain types of technical skills, I think is helpful, whether that's as an engineer, or as a lawyer, or as, a, as an investor, but just something where you kind of learn the tools of the trade so that once you've learned that and you've mastered that, you can then take those ones and then pursue what really is your passion. So if you really are into sustainable investing, you really have to learn how to invest first. You can't only be focused on sustainability. You have to learn the technical skills of being an investor, and then you can combine it with whatever your particular interests are. So I think starting with a strong technical foundation, I think is good. And then as fast as possible, run
0: towards the things that you're really passionate about. Great advice. So what do you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode, Kirsten? Well, certainly for the investors in in the room, I think it's a relevant
1: question Have we thought about sustainability mostly as a constraint on what we really would like to do investment wise? Or have we really properly completely rethought our way of investing, starting from scratch and said, if we really care about sustainability, how can we fundamentally change all the things that we do on the investing side to create these great portfolios? In other words, not to think incrementally about this as a small constraint, but fundamentally, have you really rethought your investment processes to incorporate sustainability? Most people say they've done that. I think it's, it's a great question to reflect on for all of us, including me.
2: I would add uh, what you brought up around the SCGs and the 17 broad problem areas where the world is now going towards solving these because they're becoming material both for the economy and, and socially and for our planet. So investors that do not recognize that they should look at the macro picture, having some thesis about how these problems will develop and factor that in both on the risk side, but also on the opportunity side. They will underperform as investors going forward.
0: Thank you so much, Karsten. Thank you, Rainer, for a great and valuable conversation. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after... We release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luka and you've been listening to Summa & Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see.